from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. We are back from our fall break. The Terra Informa team took some much needed time in September to catch up on stuff off the airwaves, but wow, a lot happened in September. This week, we will be rounding up all of the headlines that you may have missed while we were away. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, in Amiskwitsi, Wiskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. September 30th marked the first time the Canadian government recognized the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We hope that you were able to use that day to reflect on the colonial past and present of so-called Canada. However, it is important to recognize that reconciliation is about more than a national holiday. It is about taking the time to learn and practice how you can be the best treaty person you can be year-round. Now, let's bring in the headlines that you may have missed during the month of September. One thing that you probably didn't miss last month was the Canadian federal election. Pretty hard to miss. To start off this episode, here's a rundown of what the outcome of the election might mean for climate policy. In our last News Roundup episode, we gave you a bit of a commentary on the major federal parties' campaigns, and specifically what they said they would do about the climate crisis if elected. With the Liberal Party re-elected, many of Canada's current climate change policies can be expected to continue. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau maintains his promise of keeping Canada on a path to net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, and to reduce emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2030. Clock's ticking on that one. Canada has a bad track record for meeting past emissions targets. According to an article by Global News, emissions from domestic consumption of fossil fuels and from Canadian exports have increased since 2015 when Trudeau was first elected. The Liberal government also bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline and are working to see it completed, 
which opponents say will make it even more difficult to reach emissions targets. In defense of the Liberals' emissions reduction plan before they were re-elected, Minister of Environment and Climate Change Jonathan Wilkinson stated that, quote, we have broken the arc of the upward trajectory of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions, and we put in place the measures that are going to see the reductions going forward, end quote. The Liberals also did pass the Canadian Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act, which establishes a set of legally binding processes to set five-year national emissions reduction targets starting in 2030 and develop, quote, credible science-based emissions reduction plans to achieve each target, end quote. This act requires the Minister of Environment and Climate Change to report to Parliament with respect to each target. If a target is missed, the Government of Canada is mandated to assess the reasons for failure and describe the steps that the government is taking to achieve the target. New promises from the Liberal government regarding climate change include a $2 billion future fund for fossil fuel workers in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Newfoundland to transition to greener jobs and to stop exporting coal used for electricity generation by 2030. Old promises that have yet to be accomplished include banning specific types of single-use plastic and a goal of having all plastic be made of at least 50% recycled content by 2030. The Liberals also previously promised to protect 25% of Canada's land and fresh water, collectively called terrestrial areas, by 2030. They have yet to meet the targets set by Stephen Harper to protect 17% of terrestrial areas this was supposed to be accomplished by 2020. So while many of the promises that the Liberals have made about the environment have yet to be realized, they have now got another shot. Time to put the pressure on so that we can hopefully make some more progress before the next election. All right, enough about the election. Let's move on to the rest of our headlines. Here's Sarah Chitsas reporting on an interesting gathering of Bitcoin miners and oil and gas executives that took place in the United States. According to a CNBC article called Bitcoin Miners and Oil and Gas Execs Mingled at a Secretive Meetup in Houston, here's what they talked about. A group of 200 Bitcoin miners and oil and gas executives met in a 150,000 square foot warehouse in Houston, Texas in August. Before we get into what they discussed at this meeting, let's talk a bit about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies are a virtual currency that are exchanged without needing banks in order to purchase goods and services. Cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, are mined from cyberspace using very large amounts of electricity via supercomputers. The mining of cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, is often criticized by environmentalists for the vast amounts of electricity required to run the supercomputers. According to the article, electricity needed to mine Bitcoin is more than used by entire countries in The Guardian from February 2021. The Bitcoin mining industry has historically used more electricity than all of Ireland did in a year. 
There are some cryptocurrency companies, such as Ethereum, which have mining processes that reduce the amount of energy required compared to Bitcoin, although they still do need quite a lot of electricity. Another environmental impact of mining cryptocurrencies is that it can lead to large amounts of outdated circuits and other electronic hardware going to waste. Finally, an interesting note about mining cryptocurrency is that the supercomputers generate a large amount of heat, which some individuals and companies are looking into harnessing for uses like heating homes where Bitcoin is being mined. So, back to the story we're discussing today, you may be wondering where natural gas comes in. If you've ever been by an oil patch, you're likely to have seen the tall, thin white cylinders with flames coming out of their tops. These are natural gas flares. When oil companies encounter natural gas pockets in oil patches, they need to either sell the natural gas immediately, which requires a pipeline to be in close proximity, or they burn it to break it down and get rid of it. However, this process does not eliminate all of the methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas. The alternative is to run the natural gas through an internal generator. However, this costs more for oil companies to do than to flare the gas, so this method isn't used unless they have a good reason to pay for it. At the meeting in Houston, the Bitcoin miners and oil and gas execs were talking about the potential for natural gas found by oil companies to be run through generators to provide energy for Bitcoin mining. What this article does not discuss is that while it may be better for the environment to run deposits of natural gas through generators than it is to burn it, the greater environmental impacts of Bitcoin mining and its extremely high demand for power pose challenges to our ability to reduce energy consumption as we globally work towards reducing our emissions. Using natural gas for mining Bitcoin itself will also not necessarily address the emissions of cryptocurrency companies themselves. Although emissions from Bitcoin mined using electricity produced from natural gas that would otherwise be burnt sounds at face value like a good idea, it means that this cryptocurrency mining will still be reliant on fossil fuels. Moving forward, we may have to address the question of whether cryptocurrencies are really worth the amount of energy required to mine them. Thanks, Sarah. Next, let's go further abroad. Here's Elizabeth Dowdell reporting on China's pledge to end their involvement in coal-fired power plants overseas. On September 22nd, news outlets including the BBC and The Guardian reported on an announcement from Chinese President Xi Jinping that China will not build any new coal power projects abroad. The Chinese president made his announcement at the United Nations General Assembly, which took place just ahead of the 26th Conference of the Parties, also known as COP26, uh, this year in Glasgow, Scotland from October 31st to November 12th. You can expect more headlines about COP26 next month, but for now, let's explore what the Chinese president's announcement means. On the base of it, the announcement is good news. We know coal is an emissions-intensive form of fossil fuel energy, and no new fossil fuel energy investment is a necessary climate action. What exactly this means to the various financial institutions and other actors the announcement will impact is harder to tell. Critics have hinted the Chinese government may not really have control over all the investment banks in China, 
or the large Chinese labor force that has been building these coal-powered facilities. With few follow-up details, any real analysis will have to wait for more information from the Chinese government on how they plan to make this goal a reality. Some have suggested this statement could be part of a PR move to keep up with climate financing promises made by President of the United States, Joe Biden, during the same UN General Assembly. With few follow-up details, any real analysis will have to wait for more information from the Chinese government on how they plan to make this goal a reality. However, for some energy analysts, this statement has been long expected, and details won't matter much. While no new coal power plants abroad is good news, the announcement might have a little more punch if China hadn't just built, like, a lot of them. For the past decade, China has been building coal-fired power plants and other infrastructure like ports and railways in developing countries across Central Asia as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. For a sense of perspective on these power plants, according to data from the Global Development Policy Center, by 2033, Chinese financed coal power stations outside of China are projected to emit 433 million tons of CO2 a year. This leads to one of the second critiques of the Chinese president's statement. 433 million tons of CO2 a year is a lot, but the emissions produced from domestic coal power plants in China, those built and operating inside the country, is even more. I couldn't find coal-specific emissions data for China for this story, but the country as a whole, across sectors, is estimated to emit 13.8 gigatons of CO2 equivalent in 2020. Much of Asia relies on coal-fired power generation and China is no different. China is also the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter. Hmm. At the same UN General Assembly, President Xi Jinping affirmed China's goal to reach peak carbon emissions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060 but also brought 38.4 new gigawatts of coal-fired power generation into production just last year. So yeah, China has a coal problem. But the first step to solving a problem is acknowledging you have one. The most optimistic way to interpret this news might be to view China as a leader, acknowledging its problem with coal and pushing for change. According to analysis from The Conversation, Many of the developing countries building coal-fired power plants through the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative actually wanted coal power. For some countries, coal is the cheapest and most effective way to bring power into households, and stable electricity is a greater concern than greenhouse gas emissions. Other countries have struggled with skeptical politicians and poor infrastructure, choosing coal power for its familiarity. In one instance, a pro-coal lobby was formed to influence project design. This announcement could be China signaling, both at home and abroad, that renewables are the future. And if China has a coal problem, it's also picking up something of a renewables habit. China is one of the world's leading investors in renewable energy. In 2020, renewables made up 57% of Chinese overseas energy investments, up from 39% in 2019. In terms of dollars, China spent over 80 billion U.S. dollars in 2019 on clean energy research and development. 
And this year, the country continues to aggressively expand its renewable capacity. An end to Chinese financing of coal power plants abroad and more investment in renewables, both at home and overseas. Sounds like good news to me. Thanks, Elizabeth. If you are just tuning in, this is Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. We are rounding up the headlines that you might have missed this past month. So far, we've covered what the results of the Canadian federal election might mean for climate change policy, the meeting of Bitcoin miners and oil and gas executives in the United States, and China's pledge to end their involvement in coal-fired power plants overseas. Now, here are your land and water defender updates from across Turtle Island. On Tuesday, September 27th, a judge ended Teal Jones's injunction at Ferry Creek. The Supreme Court of British Columbia ruled that Teal Jones would not be allowed to extend its injunction, which expired at 4 p.m. on the 27th. The injunction was to prohibit old-growth logging protests in the Ferry Creek area where forestry activities were taking place. Teal Cedar Products, which is part of the Teal Jones Group, was seeking a year-long extension to the injunction. Judge Douglas Thompson stated that the RCMP do not need the powers that were granted to them by the injunction, and that police will only be able to use the criminal code to arrest protesters going forward. A lawyer for the Rainforest Flying Squad, Matthew Nefsted, in an article for the TAI, said that it's not exactly clear what this will mean for the actions of the police going forward, but that the force's power will be much more limited if they have to consider for each protester what kind of offenses they are committing, and if there is enough evidence to convict them. Previously, protesters were being arrested for civil disobedience. Nefsted also stated that, quote, it's rare for an injunction sought by a resource company with lawful extraction rights to be refused, end quote. The actions of the RCMP at Ferry Creek were central to the judge's decision to deny the extension of the injunction, according to Nefsted. A spokesperson for the Rainforest Flying Squad stated that the violence on the front lines came from the RCMP, quote, trying to enforce their version of the injunction, end quote. These actions include the use of exclusion zones that blocked media and public access to the blockades, police officers hiding their identities from land defenders on the front lines, the wearing of thin blue line patches on police uniforms, and the use of undue force by police against protesters. Judge Thompson stated that these actions add to the already substantial risk to the court's reputation that's caused when an injunction causes this kind of dispute between the public and the government. The actual act of old growth logging and its role in the climate crisis did not play a role in Judge Thompson's decision, as he stated that that issue was outside the scope of the court case, to the disappointment of members of the blockade. Teal Jones has stated that it will be appealing Judge Thompson's decision, with a company statement reading that, quote, to do otherwise would allow anarchy to reign over civil society and for misinformation campaigns to win over fact, end quote. 
People at the blockade, including Elder Bill Jones, says that the blockades aren't going anywhere and will stay to continue protecting the trees. There has not been much peace granted by the ending of the injunction. On Tuesday, when the injunction was ended, protesters drove cars up the logging roads which had been previously blocked off in order to re-establish some of their previous camps. Soon after, a bulldozer followed and dug two trenches on the logging road, according to witnesses. Police soon followed and blocked off a section of the road to allow crews to work. Land defenders stated in a CBC article that they believed that the company was trying to block them in. On September 30th, posts began circulating online about flooding at the Diddy Dot First Nation Reserve. The main access road in and out of the coastal village was flooded, and the alternative routes out were either deactivated, torn up old logging roads, or being blocked by Gates and private security group Dom Corps, hired by Teal Jones. It is not clear if this blocking of roads has been resolved as of yet. Moving east, Canadian company Enbridge announced last week on Wednesday that the construction of the upgrade of the Line 3 crude oil pipeline in Minnesota is mostly complete and that the pipeline has begun being filled with oil as of last Friday. In previous updates, we've covered actions led by Indigenous land and water defenders who state that the building of this pipeline upgrade violates treaty rights, will worsen climate change, and risk spilling in Minnesota waters where wild rice is traditionally harvested. Despite the project completion, opponents of Line 3 have vowed to keep fighting and that they will hold politicians accountable for allowing this project to move forward. In mid-September, regulators in Minnesota ordered Enbridge to pay more than $3 billion U.S. dollars for allegedly violating the state's environmental law by piercing a groundwater aquifer during construction of the Line 3 replacement. According to the State Department of Natural Resources, in January, Enbridge dug too deeply and pierced the aquifer, resulting in a 24 million gallon groundwater leak. The issue wasn't realized until June, when it was noticed that water was pooling in the pipeline trench. The Department of Natural Resources ordered Enbridge to put $2.7 million into a trust for restoration and damage to nearby wetlands, and are also requiring the company to pay $300,000 to mitigate lost water, as well as an additional $250,000 for the monitoring of wetlands. Finally, if you are a consumer of plant-based milks, you probably know that oat milk has a hold on North America right now. Here's Charlotte Thomason to introduce you to a new competitor in the game. Potato milk? Okay, so by now you've probably heard of non-dairy milks hitting the mainstream. We started with soy, then almond, and now there's a plethora of options, from oat to coconut to macadamia nut. But there's one you might not have heard of yet, and that 
is potato milk. Yes, you heard right. Those starchy and delicious vegetables can not only make french fries and tater tots, but also milk for your latte. In doing research for this piece, I found an incredibly simple DIY potato milk recipe from 2007, which was basically just one potato, water, salt, and sugar. It's not like this milk is new. But why is it gaining popularity now? That can be attributed to Swedish researcher and Lund University professor Eva Tornberg. At the university and as the head of innovation and development at Veg of Lund, she developed a commercial potato milk, sold under the name of Doug. It touts benefits such as a neutral and creamy taste and is high in protein and vitamin C. And according to Tornberg, that's why it's flying off the shelves in places like Sweden, the UK, and China, which are the only countries in which Doug is currently available. The other and perhaps most important benefit of potato milk is that it's coming out on top in terms of sustainability. We know here at Terranforma that the word sustainability is a vague and greenwashy term at best. So let's break down what that actually means. First up is water usage. Compared to almonds, which use about 16,000 liters of water per kilogram, potatoes only use 270 liters per kilogram, which is around 56 times less. Not to mention the scarcity of water supply in places like California, where almonds are grown. Soy has a lower water footprint than almond, but it's still about 2,500 liters per kilogram. When comparing it to oat, potato milk has a very similar water footprint. In terms of land use value, however, Tornberg states that potatoes are the most productive and efficient milk alternative base. This is what sets it apart from its most environmental competitor, oat milk. Compared to oats, you can grow about twice as many potatoes in the same amount of land. And when considering the limited agricultural space we have, this feels pretty important. Lastly, we also have to consider emissions. Soy has the highest amount of emissions for alternative milks per capita, but it really depends on where the soy is coming from. Some soy, such as ones from Brazil, have high emissions due to the deforestation that occurs to make room to grow the crops. It's important to note, though, that this data is for all soy production, and there's also evidence that most of the land that's actually being cleared is to produce feed for livestock, not for your soy flat white. Oat and potato milks tie again in this category, both having very similar emission levels. When we're thinking about emissions, Alyssa Kendall, professor at UC Davis, told the CBC that it's critical to also consider where the product is packaged and what the post-production shipping looks like. These often matter a lot more than the growing statistics, since only a small amount of the plant is used in the milk. For example, for Doug, the potato milk, only 6% of it is actually potatoes, and the rest is other things like water and oil. When buying an alternative milk next time you're in the store, look at where the product is grown and packaged, and try to buy closer to home, because that can make a bigger difference. And of course, keep an eye out for potato milks hitting the shelves in the near future. This has been Charlotte Thomason.
Thanks, Charlotte. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.